So if you haven't already, join me in the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in chapter five this morning. You know, I want to take a, a quick backup and do a quick 30,000 foot view of the book. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. You may recall me using this phraseology from a Christian author describing the book of Ephesians as sit, walk, stand. We talked about the sit chapters were chapters one through three. You've got one command in the, in the sit chapters. In fact, Chapters one through three is telling us everything we possess in Jesus Christ. It's describing how God secured all the spiritual blessings that he says we have in chapter one, verse three, in Christ. And he doesn't ask us to do anything with that. Just sit and listen. And oftentimes, that's when people get in trouble, isn't it? They, they don't sit and listen to all the instruction before they just race off to go do something. And he just wants us to sit and listen and soak in how wonderful Jesus Christ is and how awesome the blessings we have in Christ is, and this just grand plan that God put together. And then we move to the walk section, which started in chapter four, verse one. In fact, you can see the word walk used in chapter four, verse one. It's, he says to walk worthy. That's used six times between chapter four, one to the middle part of chapter five. And then not only that, but we had one command in the first three chapters. Now starting in chapter four, verse 25, we have 39 commands to close out the book. Last week we looked, and the week before we looked at 11 commands from verse 25 to verse 32 in chapter four. And so what we're going to see in in this section of of walk, and let me just mention as we get to chapter six, 10 to the end, we're going to get into the stand section. We'll talk more about that when we get there. We're in this walk section. And what you're going to see is that Paul, as a, as a good teacher, he is going to describe the walk of the believer, the life of a believer. He's going to clarify, explain it, illustrate it in tons of different ways. Why? Because he's hopeful, I think, that the Ephesian believers and, and us as well, in one of these illustrations, one of these further explanations, something's going to click for us. It's going to make sense. We're going to grab hold of what he's trying to communicate. And so you're going to see he does a lot of different ways, a lot of different descriptions, I believe, hoping that something will click for us. Something will stand out. Something will make sense as we desire to walk with the Lord and go forward with him in our spiritual life. Now, remember, the walk section is dependent on the sit section. We we are still walking by faith, utilizing the truth in the sit section to actually empower us to walk in an acceptable way. And these are the things that we need to see as we go through. The sit portion is actually assumed that you know it when we get to the very practical command section. As we move into verse one of chapter five, you're gonna see the word therefore, and that's gonna tie us back to what we just covered. But verse one says this, therefore be imitators of God as dear children. And so he's just rattled off 11 commands, right? Verses 25 through 32 in chapter four. And he basically summarizes all those commands. If you'd want a quick summary of what he said to do and not to do, here it is. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. That's kind of his quick summary statement of what he just covered. But you know what? It's it's also a very pertinent tie-in because what does he say at the end of verse 32? Well, verse 32 in chapter four says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted. And then notice what he says, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. See how he takes the command for us to forgive one another. And he says, do it just like God did. And then he says, therefore, you know what? Just be imitators of God. It's, it's kind of his summary statement here coming out of chapter four. Now, I'm going to make a big deal about this word be, and I hope you'll see why I'm going to. I'm not trying to copy Bill Clinton on the word it, right? But the word be, it means to begin to be, to come into existence, to, to occur uh, as a process or a result, okay? It's a command, and it's a command where a process of time is indicated, okay? So we're not just talking about a moment in your life or a, just a simple event in your life. This is describing a process of becoming an imitator of God. There's a, there's a process element involved. The fact that it's a, a present tense means that Paul wants us to start this process immediately and he wants it to continue. It's not, you know what? Yep, I'm gonna try that today. I'm gonna take two weeks off. I'm gonna try it again two weeks from now. It is designed to start immediately. There's some urgency there and to continue becoming 
this. Now, what's really fascinating, and I've shared this before in the past, is sometimes verbs in the Greek language have the same exact form in the middle and passive voice. Okay, so you, you come to the verb, and, and you'll see this lexicons. In fact, when they try to parse it for you, it'll just say middle passive, and you're like, oh, come on, take a stand. Like, <laughs> where at least do you stand? Like, they're saying it could be either or, and typically you go to the context to determine it. So let me just kind of develop why I think it's passive. If it's the middle voice, this, this command to be or become imitators, it indicates the command is executed by the believer and they receive the benefit of their action. There's kind of a reflexive element. But if we go to the passive voice, and this is where I think it, it fits better, especially coming out of the section we were in last week as well, it indicates that this command is executed by God and it's done to the believer. Now, the believer has to do what? Just like the believer always has to do, respond by faith walk by faith. We're relying upon the resources of God to execute this in our life. And so I think the passive seems to be the best fit for the context because we're active in our faith reliance, but then God the Spirit is active in producing this imitation. Because if we just imitate God, we do our best to imitate God, guess what it is? It's just an imitation. It's fake. (laughs) It's, have you ever met Oh, I shouldn't say. Well, yeah, well, have you ever met somebody that's fake? Favorite person in the world, right? Love to be around that person, right? The, fakest, the faker, the better, right? That's who I want to hang out with. No, we don't like phoniness. We don't like fakeness. We don't like someone trying to be something they're not. We like genuineness. And this is why I believe the passive voice fits here because what God wants to produce in us is, is, is God-like behavior that's real, not fake, not you just doing your best for Jesus, but actually the spirit of God producing the life of Jesus in and through us. See, that's where this passive voice comes in. And I think this is exactly what Paul is commanding here. And not only that, he says, be imitators of God. This, this imitator is a follower. It describes someone who imitates another person and does exactly what they do. You know, to be an imitator of God, by the way, requires divine resources in order to pull it off. This is what we're talking about earlier. To do what God does requires God doing things in and through the believers. And we know that this is what he wants to accomplish in the life of a Christian. This is exactly what he wants to accomplish. In fact, how can you forgive one another as God in Christ Jesus forgave you? It's as you are yielded to the spirit of God and he is doing it in and through you. Otherwise, we can't pull these things off. We need divine resources to pull these things off. And so he's saying, allow yourself to become an imitator of God. And and God's imitation of himself is, is actually better than an imitation. It's a replication. And this is what the scriptures teach. And it's, it's subtle, but it's so important to see. Look at 1 Timothy 3.16. He says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, I know I'm about... I'm, I'm jumping off of what I'm about to underline and emphasize, but let me just say this. If God says that godliness is a mystery, what does a mystery mean scripturally? It's not Scooby-Doo. It's not eerie music, right? It's, it means that something wasn't revealed before in the Old Testament is being revealed now. And you say, wait a minute. They, we could see godly standards in the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law. We can see godly lifestyles, but God had a way that he wanted to godliness in a human life, and he didn't reveal in the Old Testament. Because guess where he revealed it? He revealed it in his dear son. And this is what it goes on to say. God was manifested in the flesh. God wants to make you godly, but it's not by you trying to be more godly. It's by you and I learning to trust the resources of God so that he can produce the life of Jesus Christ in and through our life, just like he produced the life of Jesus Christ in and through a human body 2,000 years ago. Just the same. That's the mystery of godliness. And this is what we see, I believe, here in this passage with being an imitator of God. And since it's in the passive voice, I think we can read it this, therefore, allow yourselves to become imitators of God. Allow that to happen to you. Allow the spirit of God to act in your life in such a way that he does something that's quite frankly, a miracle. Producing the life of his dear son in and through our life. In fact, what does Galatians 2.20 say? It's no longer I who live, but what? Christ lives where? In me. 
This is what God is after. And I believe this is what Paul is teaching right here. I'm going to try to get through this. I actually, I actually cried in my study by myself when I was studying through this verse because it was so meaningful to me. I don't know why I'm not an only child, but I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But he, he says, be imitators of God or allow yourself uh, to be imitators or become imitators of God as dear children. And, and it describes the manner by which we are to imitate God. And, and I love this, this image because you, you notice that little children try to copy mom and dad and everything. I mean, mom and dad, for a while, you're, you're a hero. <laughs> I mean, you're a bigger hero than Superman and, and Superwoman and Wonder Woman and all these, mar- I mean, I can't even name them all. They keep coming out with more superheroes these days. But you are a hero to your kids. And this is why there's still a market for toy lawnmowers and toy vacuum cleaners and toy kitchens, <laughs> and toy toolboxes, and tool sheds. I, this is why there's a market for it, because little kids imitate and want to be just like their mom and dad. Something happens a little bit down the road, that's okay. They grow up, they get better heroes. Hopefully it's their hero becomes the Lord Jesus Christ, honestly. But you can see this, this concept, this image that Paul is communicating. And you know, one of the things that you see about children is they bear the DNA and the likeness of their parents. You know, it's, you look at a kid sometimes, uh, you know, I was even, I had just even heard about a, a young man that passed away and, and at his funeral, they were saying, you know, he had his, his dad's eyes and his mom's smile. You know, and that's the way we talk because the DNA is running through our lives. You know, it's also true in the spiritual realm. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, that when you were born again, you have the spiritual DNA of God running through your veins. We don't, we don't think of that just this, that incredible connection oftentimes. We take that for granted. Second Peter 1, 4 says, by which uh, have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. You have become a partaker of the divine nature. Uh, this is why God can produce the life of Christ in and through you because you have the spiritual DNA of the God of the universe. This is incredible news for us as a believer, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now, one of the things that uh, we learn from the scriptures is that God is love. And, and this, is, this is the part that was really touching to me. Um, his children here, he, he throws in this word dear. And um, it's a good translation. I just think, I don't know. I wish it, it, it gave us more. Because it's, it's, this word is derived from the Greek word love, agape. It is the Greek word agapetos or beloved. You might even have a version that says as dearly beloved or as beloved children. That's probably a better translation. And what it means is that you're unconditionally loved. You are to be, uh, allow yourself to become an imitator of God as, as, as a child who is unconditionally loved. And this is what really touched me. In classical times, this word particularly referred to an only child to whom the parents devoted all their love. You ever seen a, a family with an only child? And you see how they love that child? And you see how they care for that child? And you see how their life is wrapped up in that child? And here's what this verse is saying, is that God loves each and every believer as his only child. Isn't that neat? Isn't that cool to think that he gives that much care and attention? And I, you know, you've heard it said that if Christ would, only, would have only come to die for your sins, if your sins were the only person he was dying for, I believe that based on this verse. Because God's love for you is a love that's generally reserved for an only child. And you know what? In this race of does God love me, does God love me not, we all tied for first. <laughs> we all tied for first. God loves you as if you were his only child. And you know what? Based on that, guess what? Look at verse two, the next command. Walk in this love. Live in this love. Start living life in, 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 by means of this love. Allow the love of God to compel you, to constrain you, to motivate you, to move you forward. Get lost. This is why Paul in chapter three prays that we would know the, the unsearchable, the, the riches uh, of the love of God. You can't even comprehend its width and height. He, but he wants us to know it because it can have an impact on each one of us. And this is gonna motivate us 
to walk, become imitators of God. And as we'll see through the passage, walk in light, verse 8, walk circumspectly, verse 15, and then hopefully verse 18, be filled with the Spirit of God. And then how does that play itself out? But let's look at walking in love first. Verse 2, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Uh, walk is, is our standard word for walk. It, it, it's got this uh, preposition on it that means around. So it's kind of had this idea of walking around. It's not, you know, it, it just it, figuratively, it's how do you pass your life? How do you, how do you live? How do you conduct yourself um, in your customary manner? And he's saying, it, 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 as you look at your life, this should be a customary description of how you live. How do you walk? You walk in love. You walk by means of this love. You walk in light of this love that we just read about in verse one. It's a present tense command. It it indicates immediate responses desired, urgent response. Right now, start walking this way and then continue to live this way. Continue to walk in in this way with this in mind. In fact, the active voice is used, in, uh, is used here to, to say that you've got to choose. It's got to be an intentional choice. You, you can't just take it in this morning and forget about it by Monday afternoon. This is something that you're going to swirl and think about in your mind, and then you're going to actively choose to walk this way based on the love of God for you in Christ Jesus, the love that, that, is, that is on such a, a high, indescribable level. It, it's like you're the, his only child. You know, it... it and I know this isn't true, but it's like if you went to God's refrigerator, your picture's on that, on that fridge. Your third place finish in the spelling bee is on his fridge. Everything about you is in the heart and the mind of God. And in knowing that, walk forward in that. I love this phrase, in love, because it, be, it could be translated by means of love. Uh, it's this type of walk, which is sourced in agape love, which is one way believers can be imitators of God. This all kind of ties together here as we're looking forward here. Live in a way that this type of love moves you forward in life. Let this be the thing that moves you forward day by day, moment by moment. You know, many of us, we, we struggle with thoughts of insecurity. We struggle with thoughts of value. We struggle with thoughts of purpose. That's very natural, even for, for people that seem the most confident. They still struggle with those things at some levels. In those moments, allow this truth to come back to your mind. And you know what? Move forward with your head held high, your shoulders back, your chest out, so to speak, because you've got the, the only one that ultimately matters says, I love you. I love you like you're one of my only children. Like you're the only child I got. That's how much I love you. And allow that to motivate you as you live it out. And you know, he provides another great illustration, by the way, we're to walk out this love just as someone else did. (laughs) And who's the perfect illustration in verse two? It's as Christ did. Again, why should we become imitators of God? Why should we allow the spirit of God to to be, make us imitators of him because he wants to replicate this exact life in us. And then we can walk in this love more consistently. But we see Jesus, it says, according as Jesus has loved us and given himself for us. And so this is gonna further communicate the love believers are to walk by means of as a divine source. He, he mentions two specific things here and, and we'll kind of work through these individually. But he says, according as, as Christ has also loved us. And again, it's the verb form of the Greek word agape. It indicates this all giving, unconditional love, something that's kind of interesting about the form. It's in the aorist tense. And all that means is this, he's he, he's, Paul is, is referencing a snapshot of this love. He's not, he's not saying, oh yeah, you remember that one time Jesus loved you? <laughs> you know, that one time he did something nice for you? That's not what he's saying at all. He's just looking at a snapshot. It's not that Jesus didn't love you continually. It's just he's looking at a snapshot of that love. He's looking at, a, at an event, so to speak. And you know, it's, it's a past event that something's already been done. Um, those of you that have, you know, even been around a Bible or bumped into one once in a while, you'll know what that event is. I mean, it's the cross. It's the work of, of Jesus Christ on the cross. And, um, you know, Romans 5, 8 tells us this, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we're still sinners, Christ 
died for us. And, and we see that, you know, it says here, God the Father demonstrated his love, but I think God the Son demonstrated his love for us the day he died for us as well. He, he, this is the event that he's talking about where Christ loved you. He loved us. In fact, John 15, 13, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this that, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And you know what's so amazing is, and we don't have time to develop this, but Romans 5, 8 actually makes the point, what? Christ didn't lay down his life for friends. He laid, out, laid down his life for who? Enemies. <laughs> it makes it so much more substantial and rich to understand that, that you and I were viewed as enemies before the God of the universe, and Christ still loved you enough to die for you and to pay the penalty for your sins in your place and so it was Christ's love for us that motivated the next action mentioned. And this is really, again, going back to his cross work, but he has given himself for us. Given means to deliver over or up to the power of someone. Uh, you know what's so fascinating about this word? It actually carries the idea of abandonment. It, and and you, you, know, you think about that, you know, uh, that's the difference between a hero in battle and a coward, Right? A hero does what? He never abandons his, his brothers. He never abandons anyone on the battlefield. He runs back into danger. He pulls them out. A coward does what? He abandons them. He, he basically turns them over. And whatever happens to him, happens to him. I'm just going to save my hide. Well, in the case of the gospel, we know that Jesus Christ abandoned not you. He abandoned himself. He abandoned himself. He gave himself over to take the penalty you took, it was like a bullet was coming from you. He pulled you out of the way and then he purposely stepped in front of that bullet and took it for you. He just abandoned himself. And we see that kind of explained in 1 Peter 2, 23, that he entrusted himself to God the Father. He, he just abandoned himself. He, 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 the, the text says he committed or entrusted himself to God the Father to do what needed to be done. And this is exactly what we see descri- described here. The, the idea is that he gave himself over to the power of somebody else. And the, the beautiful thing is that we, we know that he did it by choice. He chose to do it. It didn't come upon him because he could have called uh, aid from the angels. He could have called any kind of aid to deliver himself. He could have delivered himself from the Jews. He could have delivered himself from Pilate's. The gospels bear that out. And he chose willingly to abandon himself for each one of us. That's what the word given over means. And additionally, notice he did it, and you, you can go back to your text there, he did it for us. And that's a, you know, it's a three-letter word, but it's a big word because it means he did it in the place of. It, it, it's a word that communicates substitution. We know what substitution is? Him in the place of you. He took you out of the way and he got in the way. There was, a, there was judgment coming and he removed you from it and stepped into it. For That's what substitution is. And, and so what is the, the illustration communicated here? What, how can we love as Christ? Does it mean we gotta go to Jerusalem and die on a cross and prove that we're walking in love? Is that what that means? No, I think the concept picked up is that the love that, that he exhibited was self-sacrificial and it was done for the benefit of others. And you know, you've got no better description of that. We can flip a book over to the right in Philippians. Go with me there. Let's read this verse. And I think this gives a, a, just a great picture of the type of love that Paul is talking about, the mindset of love for others that he's referencing here. And that's in Philippians chapter two, verse three. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. See, that's how Jesus Christ thought about you. And that's how we're to think about others. This is walking in love. This is walking by means of love. And you know, there's something significant about the work of Christ. We like to talk about it often, but we see it here even developed in this verse in Ephesians chapter five, verse two. It, it says that, that he had given himself, and he says, as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. And, and we see that his giving over himself was an ex, the exact payment needed 
for our sins. It was the exact payment needed to take care of, not, not just covering our sin debt, but doing what? Removing our sin debt so we never have to face it again. And this is exactly, uh, he's compared to an Old Testament sacrifice here. And one of the things that you'll see is he uses the word offering and sacrifice. You're like, well, that's, he's kind of saying the same thing. It's kind of redundant. Actually, it's not. Offering denotes any type of offering to God, whereas sacrifice refers to a very specific thing that's being offered. And so he's got this general term for offering, and he's got this very specific term for the sacrifice describing the thing that he offered, which was himself in this case. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that Christ was our sin offering, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And thus the wrath of God was poured out on him when it was you and I who actually deserved that wrath. And what we see in the finished work of Jesus Christ, it was a culmination and fulfillment of all the Old Testament sacrifice. Every sacrifice pointed toward Jesus Christ. And what we see in this description, he was an offering and a sacrifice. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of it all. He took care of it all. And that's why when Jesus said, it's finished, when he said that one word in the Greek, tetelestai, not only did he mean it, but it, was, it, it is a word that's impregnated with meaning. The more we learn about the scriptures, the more we can say, amen, he did finish it all. In this case, he was the complete fulfillment of every single Old Testament sacrifice. And, and it also in Old Testament sacrifice fashion, look at the end of verse two. It says that his offering of himself was described as a sweet smelling aroma. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean, wow, I, I like lamb too. You know, I, I like the smell of lamb. That's not what it's describing at all. It's not talking about the physical smell. It's talking about the acceptability of the sacrifice to God the Father, that, that, that it was sweet smelling to him. Not because they seasoned the meat well, but because the, the approacher had, a, had an attitude of faith he was accepting that on, it, on their behalf. And so we see that, the, uh, that Jesus Christ is completely acceptable to God the Father. And this is one of the things that, you know, if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, if you are not convinced that what he did was enough, I just appeal to Ephesians 5.2. And I know it's Old Testament language and you're like, ah, offering sacrifice, I don't really get that. But let me just appeal to that last phrase. He is, as the text says, a sweet smelling aroma to God. And I am here to tell you that what Jesus Christ did is enough in the mind of God the Father for you. He, he is completely satisfactory. He is completely acceptable. Everything he accomplished for you 2,000 years ago is on God's refrigerator as being enough for you. The question is, will you trust in his finished work for you alone? God is pleased. Are you pleased? God has accepted his sacrifice. Will you accept his sacrifice by putting your trust in him alone? See, religion has just got it backwards. They keep wanting to try to push works and law and things you got to do and things you got to stop doing. It's not about that. It's about what happened that was done 2,000 years ago. And in the mind of God, it's done. It's acceptable. The question now remains, will you trust in Jesus Christ alone? And if you haven't done that, do that right now. You don't have to come up here. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to pray a sinner's prayer. You can, in the quietness of your heart, transfer your trust to whatever you're trusting in, get rid of religion, get rid of all your works, and trust in the finished work of God's dear son. That's what's acceptable to him. And it's right there in the text. We just need to take God at face value and believe his word. He is a sweet-smelling sacrifice and aroma. Now, as we move forward, he takes a, a quick, sharp left turn because we, we've been talking about walking in love, and now we're going to see a contrast. You can kind of see that with the word but there in verse 3. So in contrast to walking in love, he says, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Now, we're gonna come back to, I, I say the dirty dozen. It's actually the dirty half dozen. There's six of the six things we're gonna look at. We're gonna come back there, but I wanna look at the commands first so that we kind of know what we're doing before we start defining these terms. And the command is simply this, let it not even be named among you. And this word means to, to call by name or to mention it speaks about uh, something. And because uh, the verb is, it's a present imperative, it means that we're to do this immediately, 
that, that we're to do this immediately or respond immediately. Um, and that's what's desired by the Apostle Paul. He doesn't want people talking about these things in conjunction with the believer. Um, but because it's passive, again, it's not something necessarily that we're talking about. It's something that people are talking about us as believers about. Don't even let, in other words, don't give them something to talk about. It shouldn't even be known by others. We shouldn't be close enough to be associated with the things that we're going to look at. Um, We don't even want to be named in conjunction with these things. This is what he's talking about here. In fact, look at what he says in 512. It says, shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. I mean, it's even shameful to talk about these things. So believers should not be named or associated with the things we're about to look at here. In fact, this word not even emphasizes this point even further. You'll, you'll you kind of see that um, there right before uh, the imperative be named. Let it not even be named. And so the idea is, is not only to not do the activities, but don't even be close enough to the activities that someone would associate you with them and talk about you in conjunction with these activities. Um, and so why not? I think that's a great question. And he kind of gives the why not. He kind of gives it twice here, two different words, but you'll, you'll kind of see the words that he says. So we've got six things listed in verses three and four. We're about to work our way through that. But he says, let those six things not even be named among believers because they are not fitting. Notice, you'll, you'll see that in verse three. Uh, he says, it's as is fitting for saints. And you go down to verse four. He says, these things which are not fitting. He uses that, that phraseology twice. It's two different words, basically means close to the same thing. It means that it, it doesn't belong. Um, it's not fit. It's not proper. It's not becoming. It, it doesn't connect. And, and let me give you a couple of visuals. Anybody that puts together puzzle pieces, you know what it means when something doesn't fit. And if you're anything like me, you're like, you know, cr- trying to cram it because you're just, you're just convinced that there's no other piece on the board. You've looked for an hour now, right? So you're going you're gonna to make it fit. But it doesn't fit. It, these things that we're going to mention here, they don't match up. They shouldn't match up with the believer's life. They, they don't fit. You're wired for, for a different plane of life than what these things represent. So they don't fit. Those of us trying to get into our clothes after Thanksgiving, you know, we, we understand what it means not to fit. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't become us. It doesn't uh, value us. You know, um, there, are, there are times where it, it just doesn't match. You, you're, not, you're not in the right crowd. You're, you know, you stand out in a bad way. This is not what you and I are designed for. And this is kind of what he's talking about. And so when you start looking through these things, what we're going to see is they, these things that we're about to look at are not becoming of a believer in Jesus Christ. As we're working through the text, they are not representative of a worthy walk. We'll talk more about that later. They are not a fit with the new nature. This is, these are not activities that the new man wants to produce in and through your life. These are all things we've been looking at in chapter four. These things are not fit They're not a fit with the way we have learned the Christ, which is in 420. And these things are not in any way an imitation of God. You can see these don't belong. They're not a fit. They're they're out of place in a believer's life. And this is why he says, these should not even be named among. You shouldn't even be close enough to these things that people think you're doing these things. It's kind of the idea that's communicated here. And so now he's going to rattle off this list of Six things that should never be even mentioned in the same breath as a believer's life. And then he's going to mention one thing that should be mentioned. We'll kind of get to that last. But the first thing that we're going to see is that fornication, he uses the word fornication there in verse three, is not fitting. Now, fornication, uh, you can see the Greek word there, porneia, which you, you can tell what word we derive from that word is pornography. Okay, that's the word we derive from this. And it means to commit any type of sexual sin or sexual immorality of any kind. Now, in Paul's day, um, this word, the use of this word was often associated with prostitution. And the reason for that, and we're gonna, we're gonna see this and develop this a little bit more in the city of, of Ephesus, was it was present, prostitution was actually a part of temple worship of Diana. That was part of the worship rites of that temple. And so this is a very big, huge issue in that day. 
In fact, it was a huge problem in the lives of believers in Paul's day. The Temple of Diana, as I mentioned, hosted one of the largest sex cults in the known world. The image of Diana herself was a multi-breasted goddess. It was all, it was all geared around this topic of fornication. And temple prostitutes abounded. And temple prostitutes were a normal part of life in the city of Ephesus. We need to understand the people to whom Paul is writing to. They had a past. It was sordid. It was dirty. It was despicable. But guess what? You're going to get to spend eternity with them because the same Savior that died for your despicable, sordid sins is the same Savior that died for their sordid, despicable sins. But at the same time, once you're born again, we're not wired to continue living in that life. But picture yourself in this culture where everything in the, in the culture revolved around this worship. Your livelihood may depend upon you doing something involving the worship of the temple. Maybe you made temple statutes. Maybe you delivered food to the temple prostitutes on a daily basis. Maybe you refilled the water jugs at the temple. Maybe you had some kind of business that took you into that scene day after day after day. And Paul is saying, don't even get close enough that you could be named or called out as someone who's still involved in those kind of things. And it was a huge problem. And you can see that as you paint the picture. Now, it wasn't just a huge problem because they weren't tempted to do it anymore. I think many of them were probably like many of us. There's still a temptation to sin. And this is why when we look at this problem, oh, let me just make one other comment. This is really wild as you study the culture of Ephesus. You know, prostitutes were offered as a means of hospitality to male guests in the Ephesian culture, regardless of marital status. You, that, not to get too detailed, but it, you have a couple over to your home. It was, hey, can I get you a cup of coffee and can I provide you with a woman? That was the culture in Ephesus. That was a, a form of proper hospitality in Ephesus. You talk about a dirty, rotten, sordid, gross, sinful culture. We're looking at it right here. And he is saying, you know what? God can come into a life in such a way to give you new desires and a new heart, and we do not want to live like that anymore. You know, and it's, it's sad because I would love to say, oh, those poor guys, they really had a problem with that. But you know what? It's a huge problem in our day. We don't have temple prostitutes in America, Noonan, but we still deal with premarital sex. We still deal with adultery. We still deal with porn addiction. We still deal with industries that promote this stuff. In fact, let me just give you some, some statistics that'll just uh, make you sick. 80% of young people uh, admit that they're sexually active by the age of 20. 80%. And that, there's no distinguishing mark between believing kids and unbelieving kids. It's, that's everyone. 80%, guys. 80% is what the statistics tell us. 15 to 25% of married people have had physical affairs, and if you add emotional affairs, add another 20% to that. That's almost half of marriages undergo some kind of affair of some sort, whether that's emotional or physical. Conservative estimates on the porn industry. This is going to blow your mind. $15 billion. Now, you start getting in the millions and billions, it's kind of like, well, you know, what's a frame of reference? Let me tell you the frame of reference. Netflix does $11.7 billion. The entire movie industry in Hollywood does 11.1 billion. The porn industry is 15 billion. And you know, much, and, and some of that's even free. So that doesn't even account for what the money's being spent. This is a huge problem in our culture. And I would venture to say it's a huge problem in, in any church in America and around the world. This is a huge issue, guys. And this is not fitting. This is not how God is designed to uh, us to walk. And in fact, what are these kind of sins? All of these fall into this category. It, it, they, they absolutely destroy your testimony for Jesus Christ. They absolutely destroy your desire to walk with him because now you feel so helpless and unworthy and you just feel like a piece of trash that is not, has no value and you give up on the Christian life. And that's what many people do. Just give up on the Christian life because this sin comes in and dominates them wherever, wherever it fits. And I'm just not talking about pornography. I'm talking about all of this. This fornication concept is huge 
in our culture. And it's not fitting for saints. This is not how God has designed us to walk. And it's not because he's trying to rob us of joy. He's trying to give us something so much better. In the confines of a marriage, one man, one woman, all your life, what bliss, what joy that's designed for you. And see, God knows what he wants to do. He knows how he's wired us, how he's created us. And that's what he wants for each one of us. No, he's not trying to rob us of joy. He's trying to give us true joy. He's trying to give us pleasures that are lasting, not fleeting, and that destroy you after you take advantage of it. And this is very important to understand. You know, the, the next thing he goes on to is this word uncleanness. I love how Paul does this because he kind of, he comes right out of the gate with an uppercut on fornication because it's a very specific sin. But then he's almost like, well, in case somebody thinks that they got out of that one, let me drop a little uncleanness on them, which is a more general term. In fact, it was a word used earlier to describe how unbelievers walk. It means uncleanness or filth in a moral sense, lewdness, lewdness, or licentiousness. It's any state of moral impurity. So fornication was very specific, pretty, pretty much tied to prostitution or that type of uh, you know, manifestation of sin. This is any type of impurity. So now he gets everybody in the room <laughs> with this one. You know, he's like, well, I, I didn't do that one. But now he nails everybody with this type of comment. Again, if fornication didn't catch your attention, he includes all types of moral impurity as it relates to sexual sin. Now, this could also take a more generic tone and move off of the topic of sexual sin to moral impurity of any kind. Either way, it's, it's still not fitting for the believer. It, it may not be as gross or morally repulsive to you as the first one, but, but this is still not fitting for a believer. He's got something much better designed for believers. He goes on to say that all covetousness uh, is not fitting. This word means to have more, and it reflects the state of desire to have more than one's due. Uh, it's a strong desire um, in Paul's culture to acquire more and more material things or material possessions, um, irrespective of need. I, I like that last little phrase, irrespective of need. I just want more. Uh, do you need that? Nope, I don't, but I want it. And, and that's what he's talking about here is that's the kind of covetousness. And, you know, that's one of the things that the fornicator and the covetous person have in common. You say, wow, that, that doesn't seem to kind of connect. No, it does. They each desire to satisfy their appetite by taking what does not belong to them. That's what they do. That's what the fornicator does. That's what the covetous person does. They just want what doesn't belong to them to potentially satisfy their appetites. In other words, they are not content. The fornicator's not content. The covetous person's not content. And that, is, that should never be said of a believer. Why? We have everything in the world to be content with. When you've got the God of the universe, when you're loved like an only child, when you have all these resources in Jesus Christ, I mean, we got, the, we got a lot to be content with. And so it's not fitting for a believer to engage in these things. You know, when a believer desires something they don't possess, it just reflects a genuine lack of trust in God and a genuine lack of contentment with what God has provided. And this is, uh, in a sense, you could say it's the believer telling God, I do not trust you to do what's best for me. Thus, I must take matters into my own hands. And so when you look at covetousness, it is ungratefulness at a root level. It just exposes us at a root level that we have said, God, I don't trust you. I trust me. I'm going to have to take matters into my own hands because you're not giving me what I need. And God says, I've given you everything you need. So that means if you don't have it, it's just a want at this point. And we've got to believe that. And this is why I think in verse five and even in Colossians three, we'll get to verse five next week, Colossians three, five. It's, it tells, tells us that covetousness is really idolatry. It's the same thing. You're like, man, how does that even fit? Like wanting something, it's idolatry. It's because we worship ourselves or we worship possessions over God. That's what it is. It's idolatry at its root level. You know, the other thing we see in verse four is that filthiness is not fitting, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting. Filthiness means all kinds of improper conduct, uh, acts of defiance of social and moral standards resulting in disgrace, embarrassment, uh, and shame. And this type of behavior may be excused by the believer when they're doing it, but later, after doing this behavior, when they're held accountable or maybe the wrong is brought to light, there is actually shame involved. This is kind of what the word reflects, is that you're doing something, even at societal standards, that should cause you to be ashamed, that should cause you 
some embarrassment. And this is something that shouldn't happen in the life of a believer. You know, and it happens all the time. Just go to an HOA meeting in your neighborhood. Just go to a school board meeting in your community and watch people who have actually invited. I, I actually went to an HOA meeting. It was the guy that invited me to his Baptist church when I first moved to noon and he found out I was a pastor. I couldn't attend his church. Um, and he invited me to church and, and he was, I thought he was going to kill someone at the HOA meeting over a zoning issue. And it's like, that's embarrassing. That's filthiness. That's, that's embarrassing. That's just a, a loss of testimony. He, he should be ashamed of the way he, he acted and the things he said, right? And this is what we're talking about. It shouldn't even, um, and by the way, I can give, not to be a confessional up here, I can give my own examples of acting this way in my own life. Uh, one time where I cut through a parking lot and, and my wife said, hey, you're, you're going too fast. That guy's trying to stop you. And I said, I, I don't care. I'm going around him. I'm just trying to get through this parking lot. Finally, a guy caught up to me and I was very rude to the guy. And as I was pulling out of the parking lot, my, my wife said, okay, Pastor John. And I was like, touche, touche. So, but, but it's these kind of things as they're brought to our attention, you're ashamed of them. You're ashamed of the way. And these, these things should, are not fitting. They should not be identified with believers. Clearly this type of behavior and thoughts, actions, and words, it's not in line with God's calling of walking in love, right? Walking in love does what Jesus did. It thinks about others first. It doesn't think about ourselves and how we're inconvenienced. You know, another thing he throws in there is this silly talk. Foolish talking means the type of speech which simply just betrays a person as foolish or simply silly. Oftentimes in an effort to draw attention to oneself, many believers engage in this type of talk. They, they either desire to be the center of attention, and so they, they just get more and more si- silly. They, they've got some level of insecurity where they just want to be noticed and, and appreciated, and so they kind of deviate into this type of uh, discussion, and so they, they want to tell the perfect joke. They want to share the perfect story. They want to give the perfect example, and it's the self-focused desire here that just leads people to say some really foolish and silly things. Things they would normally not say, but it's because of this motivation that they just keep pushing the envelope further and further until it becomes not fitting for that believer. And, and what it does is it simply just exposes someone's immaturity and, and carnality. Um, even though in some senses what they're saying is neutral, it might just be totally neutral, not, not sinful what they're saying, just silly and foolish and just not edifying in any way. And, you know, we, we can get caught into this when, we're, when our focus is wrong, when we're not walking by means of the Spirit. Again, the reason behind the verbal communication that makes us not fitting uh, is, is, is the motivation, not the words themselves. Now, we move to the next one. This is kind of, um, I think, pretty easy to see, but coarse jesting, um, facetiousness, coarse wittiness. It it can also involve vulgar expressions, indecent content. You know, this is somebody that's, that, that is always pushing further and further for a laugh, and then they just, they just take it too far. They just cross the line. Um, sometimes the, I mean, you can see, like, if they had a lasso, you know, they, they try to catch the words as they're coming out of their mouth. They know they cut loose. They went too far. This is exactly what we're talking uh, about here. This is what Paul is talking about here. Again, it, it most likely derives and finds its source in a self-centeredness. And this is why walking in love, walking in agape love is the antithesis of this because walking in love does what? I'm more concerned with somebody else. I don't care if I'm the life of the party. I don't care if everyone laughs at my joke. I don't care if I don't derive value from this social group of people. I'm here for them. I'm here to love them. I'm here to walk in love. I'm here to please the only one who matters, the one who died for me and rose again. And you just see our focus gets so twisted when we're in these social groups sometimes. And so what may start as a desire to be funny often deteriorates into vulgar language, mischief-making, clowning around, even at some points becoming very negative and just scoffing and sneering at what everyone else does just to get a laugh. Right? And this is, again, it's not fitting for a believer. We shouldn't be named in conjunction. Again, why is it not, why should we not engage in this behavior? Well, it's not fitting. Fitting, again, means it's, it's fit, it's proper. And you know, when you start to use terminology that we've already looked at in this uh, book, in chapter four, 
All right, he says he, for one, he says he wants us to walk worthy of the calling whereby we were called. And remember, walk worthy just simply means to, to walk in complete balance with something, to be in complete balance. Complete balance with what? Our spiritual blessings in Christ. That means our walk automatically lines up with or is in complete balance with the blessings we possess. And then that's a worthy walk. That's what's important. And then when we talk about this type of living, it is, it is gonna be puzzle pieces that fit together. That is how it should look. This is how it should look. But these kind of things are out of place. They don't fit together with the calling that God has given us or the resources we possess in Jesus Christ. So why would we excuse ourselves when we're engaged in this type of behavior? It is an automatic indicator, should be in our minds, an automatic indicator that we are walking by means of the flesh. We are not walking by means of the spirit. We are not walking worthy. We are not walking in love. We are walking as Gentiles walk. We're not to walk that way, to walk according to the dictates of the new man empowered by the spirit of God. So these are the kind of things that we're talking about here. Now, what should we do? These uh, dirty half dozen we shouldn't do, but now we get to the final one. We should be giving of thanks. This is the one activity mentioned that is fitting and is proper. Giving thanks is exactly what you think. It's being thankful. It's being grateful in contrast to the other things here. You know, being thankful is God-focused, being unthankful is, is not God-focused. It's self-focused. You kind of see that in your life. We talked about that a little bit um, over the Thanksgiving week. And you know, one of the things we can be convinced of is the Spirit of God wants to make you convinced and persuaded and thankful that for God and Him alone. The life that He's provided with you, He wants you content with circumstances regardless of everything going on because you've got God, you've got the resources of Jesus Christ at your disposal. And guess what the flesh wants to do? the exact opposite, make you discontent with everything, make you ungrateful for everything, make you feel like God is giving you the short end of the stick because of the circumstances in your life. And that's the exact opposite of where God wants us to do. Living in gratefulness, living in thanksgiving is fitting for a saint. That should be what people notice and talk about you for, not these other six things. And we'll pick up there next week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I think each believer in this room's heart desire is to walk in a way that's pleasing to you. We know that you have put us on this earth at this time, in this particular juncture, in our families, in our friend circles, etc., to live out the life of Jesus Christ wherever we find ourselves. That's our heart's desire, Lord. We, we don't want to be lazy in our thinking, lazy in what we proactively trust and rely upon. And I mean, you just teach us, Lord, in a very practical way, what does it look like? What does it mean to walk in love, to, to walk worthy, to walk by means of the knowledge of the depth of your love for us? And just, just reveal that to us, Lord, so that we don't keep going back to the, the sloppy fake and phony substitutes that the world offers, that the flesh offers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.